0: Glad you're here tonight. You guys hear music? I still hear music. Got that? All right. Thank you. All right. It's good to see you all. We're gonna take a look tonight at uh, Beatitudes and the final Beatitude, and we'll we'll take this week to finish up with the last one. Some people like to include verses eleven and twelve with verse ten, uh, but I thought maybe we could take these separately and uh, take a deeper look into this. we got a lot of notes tonight and so I wanted to make sure that you got all the scriptures that you'd need for what we're going to discuss because we've got to go through this uh, a little bit quickly. Um, next week we'll, we'll do a wrap-up session and talk a little bit about the Beatitudes in general and the place that they fit within the Christian life. All right, let's have a word of prayer and uh, ask the Lord to help us as we look at these words. Father, thank you for Uh, the encouragement that you give to us. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you've given us scripture so that we could be encouraged again and again and that we could remember what you've said, and that as we talk about it and discuss it, Lord, that we could uh, come to terms with uh, your truth. And I pray, Lord, tonight you'd encourage us. If there's somebody here that's facing some kind of persecution or difficulty as a result of following you, I pray that you would surround them with your love and help them to know the encouragement that's ours in Jesus. We pray in your name, Amen. All right, um, Matthew chapter five. Let's take a look at verse eleven and twelve. And actually, why don't we why don't we read through verses three and following, and then we'll ask a few opening questions just to get our context. All right. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you all right let's ask some questions here where where is Jesus as he's speaking this is he in Jerusalem is he in Galilee where specifically what's that <laughs> On a mountainside, Jerusalem, Galilee, okay, up north. And uh, he sat down to teach them, and a crowd gathered around him. Who is he specifically speaking to? You can find the answer to that. This is open book. All of the Christian life is open book. Um, it's uh, found in verses 1 and 2. Who is he specifically speaking to? His disciples, right? And so he's encouraging them in things that will affect them and and the teaching that they give to others. Is there anything that you noticed as we read through the uh, Beatitudes, is there anything that you noticed that stood out about this uh, last one in verses 11 and 12? I'll give you just a second, and if not, we'll talk about it a little bit later. Dean, what do you see? Okay, so third person to second person. What does that do? It's, it's almost like Jesus is describing this is, this is the ideal, this is what people are like, and then suddenly, right there near the end of the Beatitudes, it's not the end of the sermon, there's going to be more to it, but the end of these, these uh, blessings that he's giving, he switches to a direct address to them personally, blessed are you these things, and it's almost like he's concluding this and saying, "Really, as I was talking about this, I want you to know that this is personally for you." And and as we think about this, it's not just for the disciples of Jesus Day; it's for the disciples of every day. Okay, and that that includes today. So, if you're following Christ, uh, this is for you. And the Beatitudes. Jesus overturns what people thought the blessed life looked like, okay? There was a, a blessed life that I think people had in mind, and sometimes we have the ideal of what the blessed life looked like, but, but he overturns that. He shows that kingdom living may look differently than expected, okay? So we might have an idea of what it means to be a Christian, like uh, probably for me, I just thought every day was just going to fall into place, and there would be no problems, no flat tires, and... All smiles and hugs. And, and I thought that when I really got serious about serving the Lord and I started following in ministry that everybody that I ever talked to was going to get saved and feel the presence of God and be healed. And all of those things were just going to happen. And then reality hits. And it's not always like that all the time, every day. How many you face in, in walking with Christ, you face problems. Okay. Bad days. Anybody have a bad day after meeting Jesus uh, I know you. your heart wants to say no, but if you think about it, you'll probably say, yeah, had a bad day or two. That doesn't deny the fact that uh, God's still doing a good thing, that he's still present with us and he's still at work. But the people of Jesus' day had an idea of what the blessed life looked like, and they had a, a messianic fervor. They had a, a fire burning in their hearts about what the Messiah looked like, and they expected Uh, immediate triumph of the righteous over the unrighteous. And as we come into verses 10 through 12, we see that it didn't happen just like that, that there wasn't this immediate triumph of the righteous over the unrighteous, that the righteous have to live with unrighteous oppressors around them. And that's still true today, that when you follow Christ, there are still people that are around you that won't like it, and they'll give you a hard time. And so In Jesus' day, they had that expectation that when the Messiah came, he's going to kick the Romans out. There's going to be uh, blessings pouring down over and over from heaven. And certainly when Jesus came, they did. It's just not what they expected. But they expected that the righteous would triumph over the unrighteous. But there's barely been a time when followers of God have been the majority. Do you know that? Even in so-called Christendom, it's unlikely that everybody that called themselves Christian were Christian. Are you with me? And that's true today. Like when the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, was led by, you know, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, not everybody in that Holy Roman Empire was holy. Right? Are you with me on that? And, uh, there was a lot of persecution that even happened from within, uh, the, the so called church, the church visible against those who were trying to really do the will of God. And uh, frequently, those who oppose Christ, they take out their vengeance on those that follow him. And so these words that Jesus spoke, they show that being blessed is not circumstantial, but relational. So in other words, being blessed is not just about what our present circumstances are, but it's about the relationship of favor that God has towards us. And that in the end, that favor will produce a life that is full of joy and happiness. Okay, Are you with me? I'm not talking about you'll be happy all day, every day. I'm talking about a life in God that is fulfilling, a life that's beyond this life even. There's this life and there's the blessings that come in the next life. And so what I mean is that a person who is blessed may not be popular with the majority, but they'll be approved by God. And so this has seldom been seen more plainly than when the crowd asked for Barabbas. Okay, So you see that not everyone who is blessed is popular. Not everyone who is under God's favor is loved by the masses. Are you with me? And so I think of when Jesus was um, brought before the crowd. And Pilate, it it seems to me, is desperately trying to find a way not to crucify Jesus. He's trying to. That's that's what I get from that. How about you? And so he offers a solution. Let's let's uh, put this known criminal up against this apparently innocent man and see who the crowd chooses. Surely a crowd that is religious, a crowd that's supposed to be righteous, they're going to make the right choice here. Isn't it sad that Israel, who's supposed to be the light of God, shone so badly before Pilate in that moment? You know what they chose? They chose... Barabbas instead of Jesus. They favored Barabbas, who was guilty of insurrection. But the crowd, they chose Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified. And the reason may be that Barabbas represented the Messianic hopes of many, misguided as they were, more than Jesus did. And that shows that they didn't really understand what God was doing in that moment. So as Dean mentioned, there's a subtle change that takes place in verse 11. Blessed are you when previously it's it said things like blessed are, are those or blessed are they. That's a third person kind of thing. And now it's saying blessed are you. Um, and, and these verses repeat and they amplify and they personalize verse uh, 10 by that shift from second person or third person to second person. Notice uh, it says here in verse 11, blessed are you when? Okay. When. That doesn't sound like a very interesting word, does it? Maybe it's not very interesting to you, but I want you to notice that this this when has some, uh, has some impact and some force to it. In the Greek, it's an indefinite uh, pronoun, which means that it doesn't point to a specific moment like it's looking forward to the tribulation. That would be a specific time that we're looking or not so looking forward to. Uh, but there, there's a moment coming when we, we think of that. So uh, you might say, for example, when I was 13. Well, you're thinking of a moment, right, when you're 13. But when you talk about whenever, that's indefinite. That means you can't pinpoint an exact moment. So when Jesus says this, I know it says when here, but the Greek there is whenever. And it's an indefinite pronoun. And it means any time that this happens, any time that you face persecution or people speak evil about you or you're insulted, then know that you're blessed. And what this shows us is that it might not just be on one occurrence, and it might not just be for the disciples of Jesus' day. This is something that we may have to face. In fact, I would, I would bet that anybody who's really lived seriously for God, you faced it already, some kind of persecution. Persecution. And uh, maybe we need to define the word persecution. We will in just a moment. But we're facing something of some kind. And and uh, this uh, word whenever or when, as it's put here, means uh, an action that is possible and repeatable. Notice uh, it says here that you're blessed whenever you are insulted. Okay? Insulted. This uh, word means, it can be translated reviled, mocked, slandered. It means to find fault, and it actually can be used in two ways. When you hear insulted, it actually can be used of reproved or rebuked, like when somebody says to you about a bad behavior that you've actually done. Uh, I noticed that you did this, and it wasn't right. Okay, that's one use. So when we use it that way, we're talking about a legitimate reason. Maybe your your parent has said to you, or uh, a friend has said to you, "I noticed that you're doing this," and. I just, I want to tell you, I think it's not right, and um, I need to let you know about it, okay? Sometimes that's the appropriate thing to do. Would you agree? Okay, so this word can be used of that, but there's another way that it's used. It's to find fault in a way that demeans others, uh, reproaches, reviles, mocks, heaps, insults, and uh, this word is used in a way that suggests that the person who is being insulted is not worthy of the insult, so, like uh something that's unjustified, like uh you know, I don't know if you've ever gotten into an argument uh with somebody, and the um the terms start to change from you did this to you always do that, but you know what I'm talking about, you always leave the cap off the toothpaste. Whatever it is, this isn't representative of anything in our house. But, but I'm just saying, we, we sometimes can make these extreme claims that are really unjustified, and this is the kind of thing. But, but in a much worse way, it's used as a way of shaming others, to insult them, um, to find fault in a way that demeans the other person, reproaches. And uh, whenever I do premarital counseling, one of the things I encourage couples never to do is never um, never attack the person attack the problem now that 's easier said than done isn 't it but but the thing that i 'm encouraging in that is that we don 't call names don 't call your spouse an idiot don 't call your friend an idiot you know uh, don 't call names and direct an attack at a person and this is the kind of thing that 's being done with insulting. Is that you use, um, you find a fault in a way that demeans that person. Okay, the rabbis, um, and this is found in the United Bible Society's Bible Handbook on this passage, it says that the rabbis considered it as evil as idolatry, fornication, and bloodshed all combined when you insult people in this way. I thought that was really interesting. Of course, I wouldn't estimate it that way. I think insults are a little lower on the totem pole when it comes to things like that. But this is how they saw it. And the reason is because by defaming somebody's character, a person would lose their place in the community. And according to the circumstance of that day, almost the possibility of continuing his life. Um, So you could see how this could be a problem, that you insult somebody, you can really destroy somebody's life. Do you know... We, we always said when we were kids, you know this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words can do more than sticks and stones, can't they? They can destroy. You can assassinate somebody's character with words. And that's what is being talked about here is the possibility of ruining somebody's life through words. And how does Jesus see that? Because if it's seen as this deep of evil, it's ironic that Jesus would say, when this happens to you, you're still blessed. Okay, In West Africa, one of the ways that they translate this is they use the idiom to spoil your name. So when they talk about insult, they would use a, a phrase like to spoil your name. When somebody spoils your name, um, that's that's being insulted. Okay, If you've ever lived in a, a small town, you may know the power of this kind of shame. Because when you do something in a small town, everybody's eyes are on you, and everybody knows about it, and that can follow you your whole life. A person who's been shamed may never be able to move past that person or the people's, the group of people's opinion of them. And so it's interesting that Jesus would bring this up in Matthew twenty seven forty four. Um, it says, in the same way, uh, the rebels who were crucified with him, he understands this insult. They they heaped insults on him in the same way refers to the others being crucified with him, they joined in the mocking of him as powerless and rejected by God. You remember Jesus being crucified, people were walking past, and they were saying to him things like, if you're really the son of God, why don't you come down from the cross? If you really have that much power to save others, why don't you save yourself? And you're really God's son, and yet God's not coming to your rescue. They didn't really understand the situation, but they heaped insults. And the criminals crucified with him insulted him. It's the exact same word. They reviled, they mocked, they slandered. They found fault with him that was unjustified, and they shamed him. So if anybody understands what it's like to be insulted, Jesus does. So he can say to us, you're blessed when you're insulted. And he can also say, I know what that's like. In 1 Peter 4.14 it says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then Hebrews 11, 24 and 26, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater Value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead for his reward. This word "disgraced" here has to do with insults. It's the same word uh, that's being used for insults. So notice um, these insults are used as a way of shaming, uh, and they that was used against Moses in Luke six twenty two. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, and reject you, reject your name as evil because. Of the Son of Man, okay, so that's the first thing he's mentioned here: is that you're blessed if you're insulted, not just insulted because you're you're surly or uh, you can't get along with people or some personal fault that you have, but insulted because of Christ. Okay, blessed are you when that happens. Um, I feel I feel like uh, I should say this that probably right now this doesn't seem to be too relevant to us, but I, I suspect that in the near future it's going to become more and more relevant because we're, face, we're looking down uh, the barrel of a culture that increasingly has no room for the message of Christ. And so if uh, this needs to be a tuck it away at, for a later day kind of message, then do that. If you're going through it right now, understand it. Uh, you may find that Uh, as every day passes, there's going to be more and more uh, insulting that goes along with this. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But let's notice the next word here. It's the word persecution uh, or persecute when you're persecuted. And this comes from a word that means to run after. And it can be used in a positive or a negative way. Uh, But when it's used in the context that we're talking about, it means to harass someone, especially because of their beliefs. So, Harass is an active kind of thing, isn't it? It's not like passive. I, I almost I thought of putting in here examples that would include things like when you're ignored, but ignored is kind of a passive kind of thing. When I, when I think of harassed, I think of something that's very active. Somebody's snubbing you, perhaps. That's like an active thing. Like when you're around, they're intentionally trying to let you know they don't like you because of your being a follower of Christ to harass someone because of beliefs to persecute. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that Naves Topical Bible lists 204 passages. Uh, and I want to emphasize this again, not verses, passages. That means passages are not one verse, but usually several verses, right? So 204 passages that have to do with persecution in the Bible, and 113 of those are in the New Testament. And so this... uh tells us this is an important topic and it has to do with ill treatment for being followers of Jesus. So harassment being an active word is when people go out of their way to hurt you or make life hard for you. Uh, It can be anything from being snubbed uh, to, we'll just go down the line a little bit, and I imagine a spectrum here, snubbed, slandered, uh, boycotted. We, We have from church history examples of people that they're, uh, booths at the marketplace were intentionally boycotted because they were christians, and so they didn 't get i mean you can 't fall back on social security or welfare the roman empire didn 't care about you; they want your money, and so they 're boycotted, and they would have to go without some people were attacked and some killed so when we talk about persecution we 're talking about a wide wide range of active harassment that happens. Okay, all the way from being snubbed to being killed is included in this persecution. It's a whole range of ill treatment. And so I want to point out, too, that when it comes to persecution, do you know that no New Testament writer allows us victim status in our persecution? Okay, And this is important because we might think, uh, oh, poor me, look at what I'm going through. But every passage in the New Testament will tell us something like we're to expect it, we're to take an eternal perspective on it, we're to rejoice in it, we're to endure it, we're to know uh, God sees it, we're to know God will avenge it, and we're to respond with kindness, love, and prayers. Does that sound like victims? That doesn't sound like victims at all. It sounds like God's got this thing under control and that we're to somehow rise above it when we're persecuted. Notice a third area here. This is uh, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. And this is a whole phrase. The words are simple enough. We don't need to even define them. But it suggests to say bad things about you that aren't true. You ever been lied about? Somebody told something about you. And this isn't just because there's a personality disagreement. This is because you're following Jesus. And some people don't like that. Can you imagine the the level of hatred that can come from uh, following Christ? Because it it uses, and we know because it uses the words against you, uh, I'm convinced Jesus here means that people are bearing false witness against you by accusing you of evils that you haven't done. And they're doing it in order to discredit you. Uh, Of course, it's easy for people without consciences to make up whatever they want and discredit followers of Christ. In Matthew 26, 59 through 63, they did this of Jesus, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, which is the, the Jewish uh, high court. They were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy this temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Did Jesus say that? He did. He said that. Did they accurately represent him? No, because what did he mean? His body. You destroy this this temple, and in three days, I'll build it up again. But they got him on the words. They didn't try to understand what he meant by the words, what his intentions were. And they brought that before the court and used it against him. The interesting thing is, That they did the exact same thing with Stephen. Only this time, in Acts chapter six, verse sixteen, it shows us that they actually did bring false witnesses against Stephen, talking about how the temple would be destroyed. And so they bore false witness against him. And they've done it; they do it again and again. I think of the Old Testament example. uh, You may recall is Naboth. Do you remember Naboth? Naboth had a vineyard, and. Ahab wanted the vineyard. There's some humor to this story if it weren't so sad. He wanted the vineyard, but he couldn't have the vineyard, even though Ahab was the king. You know, in some kingdoms, if you want it, you're the king. You take it. But you can't in Israel because everybody had their inherited allotment that was given to them by God. And even if Naboth had wanted to sell that to Ahab, in time it would have returned to the family, but he felt he couldn't do it because it was his inheritance. Okay, so Ahab's laying on his bed facing the wall. (laughs) This is in the Bible, I'm telling you. If the Bible knows what people are like, right, tells it like it is. He's laying on his bed facing the wall, and Jezebel comes in and says, what are you doing? He says, well, Naboth's got a vineyard, and he won't give it to me. I offered to trade him one of the best of mine for that one, because I want that one, but he won't do it. And so... um, Jezebel says, why don't you grow up? Aren't you the king? I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Aren't you the king? You can get, I'll, Just don't you worry about it. I'll take care of it. So she g- gathered some rascals, and at a banquet, she got them to say that Naboth had cursed God, blasphemed. And they bore witness to people, false witness against him. And they took Naboth out, and they stoned him to death. And Ahab got the vineyard. This is an example of what can happen because people want to fight against the right ways that God has um, laid out for us. and So you can see that there's a uh, an issue of people speaking falsely against us and making up whatever they want. I'm going to return to that in just a moment, but I'd like you to notice that the reason that they do this, and this is found in verse 11, is because of me, he says. Jesus says, The insults, the persecution, and the uh, false witness is because of me. It's not because of you, it's because of him. Because you're a follower of Jesus, because you you follow me. In Luke 21, verse 15 through 19, uh, Jesus says, I will give you the wisdom, the words and the wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and sisters relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death everyone will hate you because of me but not a hair of your head will perish stand firm and you will win life listen i want to point out something here because it says not a hair of your head will be will perish right But did you notice before it, it says that some of you will be put to death? How do do you reconcile those? (laughs) That is a perfect way to say it. (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Uh, I won't tell you what I just witnessed right now. (laughs) That's encouraging, isn't it? We're going to get our hair back in heaven. That's perfect. So, uh, Jesus is uh, here encouraging his disciples that there is life after death. And not only is there life after death, but there's life after life after death. That we, if we, I don't know how you see this, but I understand it that when we die, if we're in Christ, we go to be with Jesus immediately. There's some that believe in soul sleep. I, I don't know. I think that, it, I think the scripture points to the fact that when we go, we die, we go be with Jesus and then at the resurrection there's a new heaven and a new earth and there's new glorified bodies okay with hair <laughs> so no, nothing will be peri- nothing will perish nothing will be lost it's good news jesus says they'll hate you because of me and the reason that the world hates followers of christ is because we're rebels against the true king Think of this for a moment. Christ represents a credible threat to our kingdoms. If you if you came to Jesus, what you did is you moved off the throne and you let him sit on your throne. That's what coming to Jesus is. Is It's not just saying I'm sorry for my sins and will you forgive me? Yes, that's part of it. But there is another aspect of letting him be Lord of our lives where we we move off the throne and we let him be Lord of our lives. And so he's a He's the credible threat to our kingdoms. His claims demand that we bow to him as king. And if you think about the alternative, which is what's being promoted today as atheistic evolution, it suggests that we didn't come from a creator at all. Okay, If that's out there in like the backdrop of people's minds, who then are we accountable to? If we just evolved randomly as part of a mindless process... Who do we have to answer to? What do you think? Rocks? Okay, well, I don't know if anybody's answering to rocks. What does that normally look like practically? We answer to ourselves. We do what we want to do because we don't need to answer to anybody else. And so who's the king in that moment? And so what psychology has propped up for us is the framework of a religion of the self. And in that system... We determine what we think we are. The motto uh, was prophesied in Psalm 2, verse 3, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Who's saying that, do you know? The nations. Who are they saying of their? The Lord and his anointed. Let's break their chains. Isn't that interesting that coming to God for you and me has been freedom? Uh, anybody confess that that there's freedom in coming to God? I don't mean freedom without responsibility. I just mean there's freedom. But the way they see it is there's shackles in following God. They feel constrained that I can't just do whatever I want. And so they say, let us throw off their shackles. Is God nervous? Is he sweating? No, the very next verse says, The Lord in heaven laughs. He laughs. That's not that's ridiculous. It's like a fly shaking its fist at an elephant. I'm gonna get you. Oh boy. They see religion as repressive to the true self, and it tells us we can't be ourselves. And of course, what Jesus can say was that we're broken right in the middle. We need salvation, we need a savior, we need a king so you can see why people resent somebody coming to be king and to take their throne away. And the devil loves it. He doesn't even need to get the credit so long as God doesn't get the credit. And you and I, uh, we represent the presence of another kingdom. If we're following Christ, we're representing another claim. And so you can see why the world would hate that. In the upper room, Jesus said, and this is after Three years of ministry, I expect that the Sermon on the Mounts, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, so his disciples haven't been with him very long. At the end of the three years of ministry, or three and a half years of ministry, um, Jesus says in John 6, uh, 16, verse 1 through 5, all this I've said to you that you'll not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they're doing they're offering uh, a service to God. They will do such things because they've not known the Father of me. And I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. And so Jesus is saying um, is saying here that these things will happen, and people are going to think that in uh, getting rid of you, in opposing you, that they're doing God a favor. When Paul was... Uh, be- before he was an apostle and before he had his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, uh, what was he doing? He was, he was persecuting the church, right? And not only was he persecuting the church, but he was doing it with great fervor, feeling that he was doing God a favor, getting rid of these Christians, getting, stamping out the Christian message. It's the, it's, uh, um, it's the blight that he thought on the Jewish religion that we need to get rid of this, and we need to uh, return to old uh, law-keeping. And so he was trying to get rid of that until Jesus interrupted and said, uh, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, Las Spick, who's the uh, Bible scholar and uh, linguist, he says, for the Christians in the world, insulted and persecuted for their faithfulness to God, the emphasis is on... is. Uh, the emphasis being on insulted and shamed, they are exhorted to go outside the camp, that is to give up on the Mosaic religion, worship laws and observances to join Christ in bearing his shame. So if there's a shame to following Christ, then we ought to go outside the camp and bear it. Okay, That's in Hebrews chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 33, and then chapter 13 echoes that sentiment that That we go and we join him. Because, I don't know if you know this, but one of the reasons for the writing of the book of Hebrews is that there were some Christians that, because they were facing persecution, and uh, the other thing is because of, I think, the fascination of the pageantry of the Jewish ceremony, that when you come to Christian spirituality, some of that's taken away. What we experience, we experience in reality, Okay, we, don't, we don't have to go through the pageantry to experience all of that. The reality has been made known to our hearts through Jesus. And so there were some people that because of persecution and difficulty were thinking about going back into Judaism and parting from Christ. And so you get these uh, constant uh, reminders in the book of Hebrews like, we are not of those who shrink back. We don't go back. We're going forward because what Christ has done is the real thing. And so if it's necessary that that we bear his shame, let's bear his shame and go outside the camp. If you know anything about the old uh, Old Testament custom was to go outside the camp was to be to be forced outside to be called an outsider and an outcast. And Jesus, of course, died outside the camp That's how it would be seen. He went outside and he died and we ought to go out there with him to bear his shame. Well, how do we look at all this? Should we be bleak about it and go, well, we're just going to be persecuted, so let's be sad every day? Is that the right approach? Uh, And and we all know the answer to that, but do you know, there's far more practicality to it even than that. It says that we're to rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Look at the end of that there. Uh, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad okay Uh, the meanings of these two words rejoice and be glad are almost the same and this might be an example of uh, hindiatus which is a uh, it's it's a figure of speech which means two things that really mean one we do this sometimes in English we say oh it's nice and warm okay do we mean it's nice and it's warm or do we are we generally saying kind of one thing about it You see where I'm going with that? So when you say rejoice and be glad, I think this is an example of really he's saying one thing, that we're to adopt a certain view of things. The one idea here would be an occasion for rejoicing, that when we're persecuted, whenever, remember this is indefinite, whenever we're persecuted, this is an occasion to rejoice and be glad. An occasion for rejoicing. This is one of those places in Scripture where, Mindset and reaction are instructed. Sometimes I think we view um, ourselves as passive victims of whatever disposition comes upon us, like this mood overtook me and I'm sad today. And uh, maybe moods can do that, but I I question whether in light of all the instruction in Scripture about taking up a certain mindset, whether we can fight back and challenge that. Can, Can we do that? Can we take on a different perspective? Have you ever noticed that if you're laying on the couch and you're in you've got the blues, if one thing you can do is indulge it, like put on some really sad music and just really lean into your sadness? Are you ta- you know what I'm talking about? And it kind of feels good to do that. You don't have to fight against it, you just let it happen. But do you notice that in scripture it instructs us at times to fight against it, think about Uh, When God spoke to um, Cain, Cain's angry with his brother, and God comes and challenges his anger. Do you have a right to be angry? And what about Jonah? Do you have a right to be angry about this? Jonah's upset that he's preached the gospel to Nineveh, the least enthusiastic of all evangelists of all times, and they all get saved. Like, you should be excited about that, Jonah. Everybody's getting saved. Everybody's responding to God's kindness. Instead, he's mad. And God says, do you have any right to be angry? And, uh, of course, he challenges that. What about Elijah when he goes on on the run from Jezebel and he finds himself far away? And God's like, what are you doing here? I haven't called you to go run and hide and live in this. Here, here's something I think is so important to us. As Christians, is that we have, with the power of God and with human freedom, the ability to challenge our emotions and ask ourselves, "Do I have a right to feel this way?" We have we have the ability to do that. We also have the ability to take on a different perspective because the other alternative to laying on the couch and playing the blues is put on some worship music and say, "I will praise you still." And I bet you what will happen was you'll begin to rise up. It won't be self-indulgent, but you'll find yourself rising up out of that slump and feeling differently about things because you've insisted through the power of the Spirit and your will to take on a new perspective. And the Bible commands things like that again and again. I think of what David says. I always come back to this. It wasn't even David. It was, uh, uh, I think, the sons of Korah in Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. I will yet praise him. What about the verse that says in Psalms, my heart was stirred by a noble theme. He was thinking about something, and it stirred his heart into grandeur and joy. We think of of stuff, and we can either be self-indulgent, or we can resist it. Because what the enemy would love to do is come along beside that feeling and dig it in and entrench you in it. And we have the ability to say no. No is a freedom word. Do you know that? When we say no, we're saying, I will not submit my will to that. Amen? I'm not, I'm not suggesting you it's power of mind over circumstance. I'm saying the power of the Spirit and perspective has power over whatever circumstance we're in. Two people, one person can be going through the worst possible thing, and they can have an attitude of joy. Somebody can be have a hangnail, and they could be down in the molly grubs, like, oh, life is terrible. How is that? How is that possible? It's a matter of perspective, really. So coming back to this, this is a mindset that's instructed here. When it says rejoice and be glad, we're, uh, we're called and instructed to have a certain mindset. We often think that we're these passive victims of that disposition, but this teaches us that we have some power over how we think about things. This is, by the way, in all of verses 1 through 12, this is the only command. not that interesting? Like all of this, none of this is command except for right here, rejoice and be glad. That's it. The rest of it is description. The rest of it is encouragement. But then we come to a command in verse 12, and the command is, after all of these things, some of them are not so pleasant, rejoice and be glad. That's the command. In all of this. And part of that is that we take on a perspective. Blomberg says, Greg Blomberg in his commentary says, because this life is just a fraction of all eternity, we can and must rejoice even in persecution. The joy commanded here, as elsewhere in Scripture, is not an emotion so much as an attitude. Do you know that uh, attitude can command emotion? We've got a rat, rotten attitude, it spoils everything, doesn't it? But we've got a, a joyful attitude, it changes everything. This is common again and again. I think you have these verses, Matthew uh, 5.12, which we've been reading. 2 Corinthians 12.10, that's why for Christ's sake I delight. Paul says, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulty. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. James 1.2 two. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. First Peter 1 Peter 1.6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. 1 Peter 4.13 and 16, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And then verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And these are the incentives to gladness and rejoicing. First, I'm going to mention the last one first, just because I think it. Um, I want to. I want to end with the emphasis on the other one. But the first incentive here is the prophets were persecuted too. Okay, so how is that? This and this is a little bit less clear. I think we get a sense of what it's getting at, what Jesus is getting at here, when he says the prophets before you were persecuted too, but it's helpful to say it straightforward. The prophets who were proven right in time were persecuted in their day, okay? And us uh, who are trying to follow Christ being persecuted in our day. This is an encouragement because it shows that being rejected is not necessarily a sign that you're out of God's favor. Proof, the prophets. Okay? That ought to be encouragement to us that The prophets experienced this. The other thing that relates to that, it shows that others know what it's like to do the right thing and to suffer for it. And that, in fact, the prophets, they were right. And this is, in fact, how the rebellious world treats those who are genuine followers of God. And so what uh, I think we are to take from the prophets, having suffered like that, is those who are close to God, those who are right, those whose message and lives endured past their present difficulty, the prophets, they were persecuted, okay? And, by the way, later on, hailed as heroes, not in their day, and I'll give you some examples of that. When you look at the persecution of the prophets, it shows that they were, in fact, genuine followers of God. Uh, Moses, we read that verse earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, um, and then we have Elijah, First Kings eighteen four, nineteen one through 3 Elijah seems to be like the only one willing to stand up against all the other prophets. And you remember when he meets Ahab, there's kind of a funny little encounter there with a prophet named Obadiah. And uh, he says to Obadiah, who's the servant, he's like hiding out in plain sight apparently. He's a prophet, he's a man of God, but he's kind of a servant to King Ahab. Go figure. So Elijah says, I want to meet with Ahab, and Obadiah says, how do I know that if I go get him, that God's not going to carry you away some far place away from here, and then Ahab's going to kill me? And he says, I promise, I'll be here. And so Obadiah goes and gets Ahab, and he comes, and do you remember what Ahab says to Elijah? There you are, you troubler of Israel. Do you know what the irony is? What's the irony of that? Ahab's the troubler of Israel. But this is how the persecution works is that the perception is skewed that the one who is actually the troubler thinks that they're one doing the right thing. He thinks that he, by worshiping Baal, he's going to bring the rain because Baal was a rain god who rode upon the clouds and thundered forth and sent rain. And Elijah says, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel but you see how persecution works he insults him troubler of Israel he's not what about Elisha Second Kings two twenty three. you might appreciate this one in light of the the hair comment earlier uh, Elisha comes on the scene uh, he's going to Bethel and he comes across a group of lads and those guys said uh, go up you bald head go up you bald head remember that And uh, the NIV has go away, but actually the Hebrew is go up. Do you know what they're saying? Who else has gone up? Elijah's gone up, carried away uh, in the whirlwind, right? What they're saying essentially is we want you to go away the same way Elijah went away. And so they, they insulted him by making fun of his head. And uh, it's funnier when you know that the boys didn't die. They just got thrashed about by a bear. But it would be funny enough to know that God responded in that moment. A she-bear comes out of the woods. And she-bears are a lot scarier than he-bears, right? <laughs> and they got on those boys, so there are 42 of them, and they got thrashed about, mauled, but apparently not to death. And so hopefully they learned their lesson in that, but they were persecuting. Isaiah, uh, in 2 Kings 9 11 is called a maniac by Jehu. If you want to talk about being insulted, Isaiah was insulted. Uh, you maniac, or here comes that madman. And we can't be certain, but there's uh, evidence for his martyrdom too, by being sawn in two. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, it vaguely re- uh, references somebody who... Was sawn in two, or people who were sawn in two, and there is some in the Mishnah, and Justin Martyr points it out, and some other historical um, references that are much later that suggest that as Isaiah was put within a tree trunk, and they cut the, the they cut it in two with him in it, and so that might have been how he died. If that's the case, he was persecuted to death, and this would have been by the followers of Manasseh. He prophesied through I think four different kings maybe five, and it came to Manasseh, and some of his radical followers may have taken Isaiah and killed him in that way. And then we have Jeremiah, we have examples of him prophesying, and even him talking about in uh, chapter 20, verse 10, about his friends looking for him to to slip up in his prophecies so they could stone him to death. And there's other examples of that where... uh, They wanted to say, you can't be a real prophet because you're prophesying against this place, the temple. And everybody's up in arms when he did that. And some elders come out of the woodwork, and they go, hey, wait a minute. They referred to Scripture. They said, Micah prophesied something like this when he was alive about 100 years earlier. And so uh, they saved his bacon, so to speak. And then Amos, in Amos chapter 7, Uh, Verses 10 through 12, and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36 through 38. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. Uh, They were put to death by stoning, sawn in two. Uh, They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. And they wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes of the ground. These people live by faith, and yet they're persecuted. Matthew 23, you can see uh, verse 30, 32. Um, discipleship, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it's therefore not all that surprising the Christians should be called on to suffer. In fact, it's a joy and a token of his grace. He wrote that in Cost of Discipleship. So the first incentive for us, uh, to take on this joyful <laughs> this joyful disposition is that this is what happens with those whom God approves, that they get persecuted in this life, whatever comfort that can be. But I think a greater comfort remains, and that's that great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. Notice it says there, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. This is the call to take on an eternal perspective. I don't know how better to say this, but we don't look at life as if life is the 70 or 80 or 90 years that we have. We don't look at life that way as Christians. And if that's the way we're looking at it, let me call you to a new perspective. That life is only beginning when we pass from this life to the next. That's a different perspective. And all that happens to us in this life, God's taken account of. And he will see that things are set right. And So I want to Challenge us that we don't look at things in in terms of this life. If this is all that there is, then we would live like uh, the heathen do, and we make it all about pleasure. Let's get on with life. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. By the way, that is not a godly statement. For tomorrow we die. That's not a godly statement. That's actually counter-Christian. We can be merry. We can enjoy life. Under God, but we also understand that we don't do that because tomorrow we die okay there's other reasons to rejoice, and it 's because of what God has done and what he'll continue to do. So what form does the great reward take? Great is your reward in heaven we've been talking about all through this that whenever it talks about the kingdom of heaven it doesn't it's not referring to uh, the heavens or our heavenly reward. It's talking about the kingdom of God, and this is Matthew's particular way of of um, avoiding saying uh, saying God, mentioning the name of God. It's it's like this Jewish aversion to taking the Lord's name in vain, and so uh, you can see this. And I, I don't want to take time to prove that here, but let me just say that if you Reference kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven in your concordance. You'll find that Matthew and Luke and Mark, that where Matthew says kingdom of heaven, Mark and Luke will say kingdom of God because they're not necessarily following that. Mark's probably writing to Romans, uh, Luke writing to Gentiles in general. And so he's not using the Jewish aversion. Matthew does. And so what I'm saying that for is that when it comes to this, great is your reward in heaven, it's not necessarily saying great is your reward heaven. It's saying that great is your reward in God, okay? And the point of that is that it's much more than just that we endure this life so that we can go to heaven. There's more than just the streets of gold is our reward. you understand that? That that's not even the greatest part of our reward is the fact that there's uh, a mansion over the hilltop uh, or that there are streets of gold or that there's the celestial city. That's all backdrop to the really important thing that we're going to have happen, that we will see Him. You know, it's not heaven that's our reward. God is our reward. He is our portion. Seeing Him, hearing the accolades, having fame with God, hearing the well-done, good and faithful servant, that's the reward of the faithful. All the other stuff, backdrop to it. So when it's saying great is your reward in heaven, it's much more than just heaven. It's great is your reward with God. R.T. France says in his commentary "In heaven, uh, he says the fact that it is in heaven and that phrase is probably best understood not as a location so much as of a relationship with God. And... um, Let's see. There was one more reference to that Craig Blomberg reward. More uh, literally, here wages. Great as your reward is actually wages. Did you know that is more a promise of future recompense for a present condition of persecution, or reproach than a reward for piety. Like God's not rewarding you, rewarding you because you've been good and you've earned your way to heaven. This is because you've uh, put up with all of these things. In addition to your salvation, there is reward beyond that. Like God could just save us and take us to be with him, there's so much more that he's done in response to that. France uh, says, not in the sense of this earnest, uh, this earned payment, this idea is excluded by Luke 17 10, where it talks about, uh, we ought not to say that I deserve this or that, but that we simply are servants who've done our duty. But this is a freely given uh, reward. So both of these, the prophets And this great reward in heaven, this great reward in God, both of these are a matter of perspective. And if we're focusing on the wrong kind of things, like being liked or being comfortable, some people make their goal in life to have fun. It's not a matter of what was right and wrong, but did we have fun? Did you have fun? Well, that's not always the most important thing. When you come to church, the most important thing isn't, did you have fun or were you entertained? (laughs) That's obvious that that's not our main priority here. Uh, I want us to enjoy being in the presence of God and hearing the Word. We're not trying to have fun. We're trying to shape our souls. Understand? That, that That's serious business, and sometimes it's fun to be in the presence of God, and sometimes it's not fun because He's dealing with us in a certain way. But if we're making it about comfort or fun or getting ahead in this life, then we won't be able to rejoice in the middle of persecution because our focus is going to be undermining our faith. But if we're looking at those things with an eternity in mind, then we can care about what's right more than what's popular, and we can find that place to be glad in the middle of persecution. Notice uh, finally here, I've come back to the very first word, blessed. Blessed are you when these things happen insults, persecutions, people saying falsehood about you, Um, blessed. You're considered blessed, even enviable despite persecution. And why is that? Because you are in the kind of life that God favors, enviable in time, even though circumstances don't seem so now. And this is something like Jesus giving approval and encouragement Um, have you ever been harassed for doing the right thing? Anybody? Like you did the right thing at work and people aren't happy about it. Or what about doing the right thing at home? People aren't happy about it. Or doing the right thing out in public and people aren't happy about it. You, You know what I mean? And sometimes shame can come from that kind of thing. And if you've ever been harassed for doing the right thing, you know that it sometimes feels that you've done something wrong even though you did the right thing. I don't know if you can relate to that. I know that there have been times where I've preached the word honestly and clearly, and somebody's made me feel like I did the wrong thing. Like you shouldn't have said that. Anybody, you know what I'm talking about? Where you tried to do the right thing, and you get shame for it. I'm, I'm just, that's an example that I could think of, but there's lots of other things like, Maybe you tried to tell the truth if you're an accountant at your job, and they would rather muddy the books. And they don't want you doing that because it's going to cost the company money in some other way. You can you can imagine that there are times when that happens, and so you feel that you've done wrong. And often those shaming you are coming from a position of power, the influential, the policymakers, uh, an aggressive minority or an oppressive majority. And their tactics aren't fair or honest. The early Christians were accused of some things, and this we're winding down, so um, stick with me for a few moments. They were accused of being necrophiles, which means lovers of the dead. You know that their persecution broke out, and one of the things the early church had to do was had to find a place to meet where they wouldn't be bothered and harassed. So one of the places they, they went was to the catacombs, and they met there. And so rumors began to spread about them that they were lovers of the dead. And you can imagine where people's imaginations went with that. They were accused of being cannibals because of a misunderstanding about eat my flesh and drink my blood. I said these people are necrophiles and cannibals. And atheists because they didn't worship the pantheon of Greek or Roman gods. They don't worship our gods. They're atheists. Are Christians atheists or not? But that was the accusation. And today, the accusations are we're unscientific because we don't believe in evolution as a mindless, unguided process. You're unscientific. You don't agree with all the experts on that. Or we're judgmental be, judgmental because we say that some behaviors are wrong before God. It's not judgmental. Yeah, you know, by the way, uh, we often hear that. It's the favorite verse of the non- Believer is judge not, lest you be judged. It's her favorite verse. And you know, right after that, it says, you'll know them by their fruits. How can you know somebody by their fruits except if you're critical of or evaluating? You understand what I mean by that? And then uh, another one is that we're homophobic and transphobic because we believe in biological design given by God. I want to tell you that the majority of Christians I know are not, you know what phobic means, right? Afraid. The majority of Christians I know who have a problem and say that the Bible speaks out against these behaviors, it's not because we're afraid of those behaviors. It's because we think that God says that's not his design, and for that person to achieve who God has created them to be, they can't live in that lifestyle. And so if we call it wrong, it's not because we are hateful, it's because we love, if we call it wrong, it's not because we're afraid. Well, you're you're just phobic, not phobic. I promise you, we're not phobic. We we love people and we want to see them uh, succeed in God. So Jesus' word reminds us that rejection by the world is not the same thing as being wrong. Okay, if uh, you're persecuted and somebody insults you by calling you <laughs> one of those names we just mentioned. Um, It doesn't mean you're wrong. In fact, as the culture slides away from truth, it's certain that those who hold on to a fixed morality will be considered outdated, narrow-minded, hindrances to progress, social pariahs, standing in the way of the brave new world. We should get used to it. See, we're caught up in a conflict of kingdoms here. And you can either kind of go the way of uh, the world and, and live at ease and adjust your morals at every phase along the way, and by the way, they'll always be changing. Or we can cling to what we know is true. But there is a kingdom in conflict. The world has a great media machine behind it, but God's greater still. It has Satan behind it, but God's greater still. And salvation has begun, and his kingdom, this kingdom life is now lived, and we now have Jesus, With this assurance of the future, our present existence is transformed and validated by our Savior. And so let me encourage us with these words as we close. Though they hate you, God loves you. Though they plot against you, God has a plan for you. And though they disapprove, God approves of you in Christ. And he gets the last word. This is a really tender beatitude whose first tears were those who would give their lives for Jesus. They would die for the gospel. Minus John and Judas, of course, and John, who is the only disciple that we know of that lived to old age. Every other disciple we know of died as a martyr. Peter, uh, being crucified, we're told from tradition that he refused to be crucified in the same way as Jesus and insisted on being crucified upside down. But uh, the blood that they shed was the seed of the church, and the church has grown through it. Persecution uh, continues to this day. We don't feel it as much in our part of the world as it's felt in other parts of the world. Uh, You might remember just a few years ago that um, a group of Egyptian Christians were taken to a beach and beheaded as followers of Christ. That's in this last decade. So persecution persists. And we have no reason to think that the status quo will remain the same when the world's uh, opposition to Christ continues to move in the direction that it does. The church will increasingly be seen as standing in the way. And I'm not trying to promote fear. I think the opposite should happen. I think we ought to take heart that God has our back and that this is our moment to stand up and be counted for and make a difference. All serious Christians are likely to experience in one way or another persecution. And we must not turn down our love for Jesus because it sets us apart. And we shouldn't stop speaking the truth about him because it makes people mad. And we shouldn't let persecution extinguish our flame. And so I want to encourage us tonight. You're blessed. I went over two minutes. I'll take it off the Sunday sermon, all right? Let's stand. (laughs) Let's stand and uh, have a word of prayer. If you have any questions or comments, you can address those to me personally. Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, the encouragement of your word tonight, that there is blessedness despite circumstances because we stand under the favor of God. And if we should face persecution, I pray that you give us your strength to be able to endure it. We pray that, Lord, you help us to live in such a mindset that we're able to rejoice and be glad no matter what the circumstances are. And, God, we pray that you help us to stand firm for the truth and for you above all things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight.